Section 33 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 33, Foundation of the Order of Knights Templars, A.D. 1118, by Charles G. Addison. Among the military orders of past ages, that of the Knights Templars, founded for the defense of the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem with its lofty motive, its superb organization and discipline, and its history extending over nearly two centuries, is justly accounted one of the most illustrious. At the period when this extraordinary and romantic order came into existence, the contrasting spirits of warlike enterprise and monastic retirement were drawing men, some from the field to the cloister, others from the life of ascetic piety to the scenes of strife. There appeared a strange blending of these two tendencies, which indeed was the leading characteristic of the time. This union of the religious with the militant spirit had been promoted by the enthusiasm of the Crusades, which had already been undertaken, and among the crusaders themselves, the blended spiritual and military ideal of the holy war had its complete development. Let us recall the reasons and the beginnings of the crusades themselves. Upon the legendary discovery of the holy sepulchre by Helena, the mother of Constantine, about three hundred years after the death of Christ, and the consequent erection, as it is said, by her great son, the first Christian emperor of Rome, of the magnificent church of the holy sepulchre over the sacred spot a tide of pilgrimage set in toward jerusalem which increased in strength as christianity gradually spread throughout europe when in a d six thirty seven the holy city was surrendered to the saracens the caliph omar gave guarantees for the security of the christian population under this safeguard the pilgrimages to jerusalem continued to increase until in 1064 the Holy Sepulchre was visited by 7,000 pilgrims, led by an archbishop and three bishops. But in 1065, Jerusalem was taken by the Turkomans, who massacred 3,000 citizens and placed the command of the city in savage hands. Terrible oppression of the Christians there followed. The Patriarch of Jerusalem was dragged by the hair of his head over the sacred pavement of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and cast into a dungeon for ransom, extortion, imprisonment, and massacre were indiscriminately visited upon the people. Such were the conditions that aroused the indignant spirit of Christendom and prepared it for the cry of Peter the Hermit, which awoke the wild enthusiasm of the Crusades. When Jerusalem was captured by the Crusaders under Godfrey of Bouillon in 1099, the zeal of pilgrimage burst forth anew. But although Jerusalem was delivered, Palestine was still infested with the infidels, who made it as hazardous as before for the pilgrims entering there. Some means for their protection must be found, and out of this necessity grew the great military order of which the following pages treat. To alleviate the dangers and distresses to which the pilgrim enthusiasts were exposed, to guard the honor of the saintly virgins and matrons, and to protect the gray hairs of the venerable palmers, nine noble knights formed a holy brotherhood in arms, and entered into a solemn compact to aid one another in clearing the highways of infidels and robbers, and in protecting the pilgrims through the passes and defiles of the mountains to the holy city. Warmed with the religious and military fervor of the day, and animated by the sacredness of the cause to which they had devoted their swords, 
They called themselves the poor fellow soldiers of Jesus Christ. They renounced the world and its pleasures, and in the Holy Church of the Resurrection, in the presence of the Patriarch of Jerusalem, they embraced vows of perpetual chastity, obedience, and poverty, after the manner of monks. Uniting in themselves the two most popular qualities of the age, devotion and valor, and exercising them in the most popular of all enterprises, the protection of the pilgrims and of the road to the Holy Sepulchre, they speedily acquired a vast reputation and a splendid renown. At first, we are told, they had no church and no particular place of abode, but in the year of our Lord, 1118, 19 years after the conquest of Jerusalem by the Crusaders, they had rendered such good and acceptable service to the Christians that Baldwin II, King of Jerusalem, granted them a place of habitation within the sacred enclosure of the temple on Mount Moriah, amid those holy and magnificent structures, partly erected by the Christian Emperor Justinian and partly built by the Caliph Omar, which were then exhibited by the monks and priests of Jerusalem, whose restless zeal led them to practice on the credulity of the pilgrims and to multiply relics and all objects likely to be sacred in their eyes, as the Temple of Solomon, whence the poor fellow soldiers of Jesus Christ, came thenceforth to be known by the name of the Knighthood of the Temple of Solomon. A few remarks in elucidation of the name Templars, or Knights of the Temple, may not be unacceptable. By the Muslims, the site of the great Jewish temple on Mount Moriah has always been regarded with peculiar veneration. Muhammad, in the first year of the publication of the Quran, directed his followers, when at prayer, to turn their faces toward it, and pilgrimages have constantly been made to the holy spot by devout Muslims. On the conquest of Jerusalem by the Arabians, it was the first care of the Caliph Omar to rebuild the Temple of the Lord. Assisted by the principal chieftains of his army, the commander of the faithful undertook the pious office of clearing the ground with his own hands and of tracing out the foundations of the magnificent mosque which now crowns with its dark and swelling dome the elevated summit of Mount Moriah. This great house of prayer, the most holy Muslim temple in the world after that of Mecca, is erected over the spot where Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Oman, the Jebusite. It remains to this day in a state of perfect preservation and is one of the finest specimens of Saracenic architecture in existence. It is entered by four spacious doorways, each door facing one of the cardinal points, the Bab el Dejanat or Gate of the Garden, on the north, the Bab el Kebla, or Gate of Prayer, on the south, the Bab ibn el Daud or Gate of the Son of David, on the east, and the Bab el Garbi, on the west. By the Arabian geographers, it is called Beit Allah, the House of God, also Beit al-Mokadis, or Beit al-Maqdis, the Holy House. From it, Jerusalem derives its Arabic name El-Kodes, the Holy, El-Sharif, the Noble, and El-Mubarak, the Blessed, while the governors of the city, instead of the customary high-sounding titles of sovereignty and dominion, take the simple title of Hami, or Protectors. On the conquest of Jerusalem by the Crusaders, the crescent was torn down from the summit of this famous Muslim temple and was replaced by an immense golden cross and the edifice was then consecrated to the services of the Christian religion, but retained its simple appellation of the Temple of the Lord. William, Archbishop of Tyre and Chancellor of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, 
gives an interesting account of this famous edifice as it existed in his time, during the Latin dominion. He speaks of the splendid mosaic work, of the Arabic characters setting forth the name of the founder and the cost of the undertaking, and of the famous rock under the center of the dome, which is to this day shown by the Moslems as the spot whereon the destroying angel stood, with his drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. This rock, he informs us, was left exposed and uncovered for the space of fifteen years after the conquest of the holy city by the Crusaders, but was, after that period, cased with a handsome altar of white marble, upon which the priests daily said Mass. To the south of this holy Mussulman temple, on the extreme edge of the summit of Mount Moriah, and resting against the modern walls of the town of Jerusalem, stands the venerable Church of the Virgin, erected by the Emperor Justinian, whose stupendous foundations, remaining to this day, fully justify the astonishing description given of the building by Procopius. That writer informs us that in order to get a level surface for the erection of the edifice, it was necessary, on the east and south sides of the hill, to raise up a wall of masonry from the valley below, and to construct a vast foundation, partly composed of solid stone and partly of arches and pillars. The stones were of such magnitude that each block required to be transported in a truck drawn by forty of the emperor's strongest oxen and to admit of the passage of these trucks it was necessary to widen the roads leading to jerusalem the forests of lebanon yielded their choicest cedars for the timbers of the roof and a quarry of variegated marble seasonably discovered in the adjoining mountains furnished the edifice with superb marble columns the interior of this interesting structure which still remains at jerusalem after a lapse of more than thirteen centuries in an excellent state of preservation is adorned with six rows of columns from whence spring arches supporting the cedar beams and timbers of the roof and at the end of the building is a round tower surmounted by a dome the vast stones the walls of masonry and the subterranean colonnade raised to support the southeast angle of the platform whereon the church is erected are truly wonderful and may still be seen by penetrating through a small door and descending several flights of steps at the southeast corner of the enclosure. Adjoining the sacred edifice, the emperor erected hospitals or houses of refuge for travelers, sick people, and mendicants of all nations. The foundations whereof, composed of handsome Roman masonry, are still visible on either side of the southern end of the building. On the conquest of Jerusalem by the Moslems, this venerable church was converted into a mosque and was called Dejame al-Aqsa. It was enclosed, together with the great Mussulman Temple of the Lord erected by the Caliph Omar, within a large area by a high stone wall, which runs around the edge of the summit of Mount Moriah, and guards from the profane tread of the unbeliever the whole of that sacred ground, whereon once stood the gorgeous temple of the wisest of kings. When the holy city was taken by the Crusaders, the Dejama al-Aqsa, with the various buildings constructed around it, became the property of the kings of Jerusalem, and is denominated by William of Tyre the palace, or royal house to the south of the temple of the Lord, vulgarly called the Temple of Solomon. It was this edifice, or temple, on Mount Moriah, which was appropriated to the use of the poor fellow soldiers of Jesus Christ, as they had no church and no particular place of abode, and from it they derived their name of Knights Templars. James of Vitry, Bishop of Acre, who gives an interesting account of the holy places, thus speaks of the temple of the Knights Templars. There is, moreover, at Jerusalem another temple of immense spaciousness and extent, 
from which the brethren of the knighthood of the temple derive their name of Templars, which is called the Temple of Solomon, perhaps to distinguish it from the one above described, which is specially called the Temple of the Lord. He moreover informs us in his Oriental History that in the Temple of the Lord there is an abbot and canons regular, and be it known that the one is the Temple of the Lord and the other the Temple of the Chivalry. These are clerks, the others are knights. The canons of the temple of the Lord conceded to the poor fellow soldiers of Jesus Christ the large court extending between that building and the temple of Solomon. The king, the patriarch, and the prelates of Jerusalem, and the barons of the Latin kingdom, assigned to them various gifts and revenues for their maintenance and support. And, the order being now settled in a regular place of abode, the knights soon began to entertain more extended views and to seek a larger theater for the exercise of their holy profession. Their first aim and object had been, as before mentioned, simply to protect the poor pilgrims on their journey backward and forward from the seacoast to Jerusalem. But as the hostile tribes of Muslims, which everywhere surrounded the Latin kingdom, were gradually recovering from the stupefying terror into which they had been plunged by the successful and exterminating warfare of the first crusaders, and were assuming an aggressive and threatening attitude, it was determined that the holy warriors of the temple should, in addition to the protection of pilgrims, make the defense of the Christian kingdom of Jerusalem, of the Eastern Church, and of all the holy places a part of their particular profession. The two most distinguished members of the fraternity were Hugh de Payens and Geoffrey de Saint Aldemar, or Saint Omer, two valiant soldiers of the cross, who had fought with great credit and renown at the siege of Jerusalem. Hugh de Payens was chosen by the knights to be superior of the new religious and military society by the title of the Master of the Temple, and he has, in consequence, been generally called the founder of the order. The name and reputation of the Knights Templars speedily spread throughout Europe, and various illustrious pilgrims of the far west aspired to become members of the Holy Fraternity. Among these was Folk, Count of Anjou, who joined the society as a married brother, 1120, and annually remitted the order 30 pounds of silver. Baldwin, king of Jerusalem, foreseeing that great advantages would accrue to the Latin kingdom by the increase of the power and numbers of these holy warriors, exerted himself to extend the order throughout all Christendom, so that he might, by means of so politic an institution, keep alive the holy enthusiasm of the West, and draw a constant succor from the bold and warlike races of Europe for the support of his Christian throne and kingdom. St. Bernard, the holy abbot of Clairvaux, had been a great admirer of the Templars. He wrote a letter to the Count of Champagne on his entering the order, 1123, praising the act as one of eminent merit in the sight of God. And it was determined to enlist the all-powerful influence of this great ecclesiastic in favor of the fraternity. By a vow of poverty and penance, by closing his eyes against the visible world, by the refusal of all ecclesiastical dignities, the abbot of Clairvaux became the oracle of Europe and the founder of 160 convents. Princes and pontiffs trembled at the freedom of his apostolical censures. France, England, and Milan consulted and obeyed his judgment in a schism of the church. The debt was repaid by the gratitude of Innocent II and his successor, Eugenius III, was the friend and disciple of the holy St. Bernard. To this learned and devout prelate, two knights Templars were dispatched with the following letter. 
Baldwin, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, King of Jerusalem and Prince of Antioch, to the Venerable Father Bernard, Abbot of Clairvaux, health and regard. The brothers of the temple, whom the Lord hath deigned to raise up, and whom by an especial providence he preserves for the defense of this kingdom, desiring to obtain from the Holy See the confirmation of their institution and a rule for their particular guidance, we have determined to send to you the two knights, Andrew and Gondomar, men as much distinguished by their military exploits as by the splendor of their birth, to obtain from the Pope the approbation of their order, and to dispose his holiness to send succor and subsidies against the enemies of the faith, reunited in their design to destroy us and to invade our Christian territories. Well knowing the weight of your mediation with God and his vicar upon earth, as well as with the princes and powers of Europe, we have thought fit to confide to you these two important matters, whose successful issue cannot be otherwise than most agreeable to ourselves. The statutes we ask of you should be so ordered and arranged as to be reconcilable with the tumult of the camp and the profession of arms. They must, in fact, be of such a nature as to obtain favor and popularity with the Christian princes. Do you then so manage that we may, through you, have the happiness of seeing this important affair brought to a successful issue, and address for us to heaven the incense of your prayers? Soon after the above letter had been dispatched to St. Bernard, Hugh de Payens himself proceeded to Rome, accompanied by Geoffrey de Saint Aldemar and four other brothers of the order, namely Brother Payen de Montdidier, Brother Goral, Brother Geoffrey Bissol, and Brother Archambald de Saint Armand. They were received with great honor and distinction by Pope Honorius, who warmly approved of the objects and designs of the Holy Fraternity. St. Bernard had, in the meantime, taken the affair greatly to heart. He negotiated with the Pope, the Legate, and the Bishops of France, and obtained the convocation of a great ecclesiastical council at Troy, 1128, which Hugh de Payens and his brethren were invited to attend. This council consisted of several archbishops, bishops, and abbots, among which last was St. Bernard himself. The rules to which the Templars had subjected themselves were there described by the Master, and to the holy abbot of Clairvaux was confided the task of revising and correcting these rules, and of framing a code of statutes fit and proper for the governance of the great religious and military fraternity of the temple. The rule of the poor fellow soldiers of Jesus Christ and of the Temple of Solomon, arranged by St. Bernard and sanctioned by the Holy Fathers of the Council of Troy for the government and regulation of the monastic and military society of the Temple, is principally of a religious character and of an austere and gloomy caste. It is divided into 72 heads or chapters, and is preceded by a short prologue addressed to all who disdain to follow after their own wills and desire with purity of mind to fight for the Most High and True King, exhorting them to put on the armor of obedience and to associate themselves together with piety and humility for the defense of the Holy Catholic Church, and to employ a pure diligence and a steady perseverance in the exercise of their sacred profession, so that they might share in the happy destiny reserved for the holy warriors who had given up their lives for Christ. The rule enjoins severe devotional exercises, self-mortification, fasting and prayer, and a constant attendance at matins, vespers, and on all the services of the church, that, being refreshed and satisfied with heavenly food, instructed and established with heavenly precepts, after the consummation of the divine mysteries, none might be afraid of the fight, 
but be prepared for the crown. If unable to attend the regular service of God, the absent brother is for matins to say over thirteen paternosters, for every hour seven, and for vespers nine. When any Templar draweth nigh unto death, the chaplains and clerk are to assemble and offer up a solemn mass for his soul. The surrounding brethren are to spend the night in prayer, and a hundred paternosters are to be repeated for the dead brother. Moreover, say the Holy Fathers, we do strictly enjoin you that with divine and most tender charity ye do daily bestow as much meat and drink as was given to that brother when alive unto some poor man for forty days. The brethren are on all occasions to speak sparingly and to wear a grave and serious deportment. They are to be constant in the exercise of charity and almsgiving, to have a watchful care over all sick brethren, and to support and sustain all old men. They are not to receive letters from their parents, relations, or friends without the license of the master, and all gifts are immediately to be taken to the latter or to the treasurer, to be disposed of as he may direct. They are, moreover, to receive no service or attendance from a woman, and are commanded, above all things, to shun feminine kisses. This same year, 1128, Hugh of the Temple came from Jerusalem to the king in Normandy, and the king received him with much honor and gave him much treasure in gold and silver, and afterward he sent him into England, and there he was well received by all good men, and all gave him treasure, and in Scotland also, and they sent in all a great sum in gold and silver by him to Jerusalem, and there went with him and after him so great a number as never before since the days of Pope Urban. Grants of land, as well as of money, were at the same time made to Hugh de Payens and his brethren, some of which were shortly afterward confirmed by King Stephen on his accession to the throne, 1135. Among these is a grant of the manor of Bistelisham, made to the Templars by Count Robert de Ferrara, and a grant of the Church of Langerford in Bedfordshire, made by Simon de Wahal and Sibylla his wife and Walter their son. Hugh de Payens, before his departure, placed a knight Templar at the head of the order in England, who was called the Prior of the Temple and was the procurator and vice-regent of the Master. It was his duty to manage the estates granted to the fraternity, and to transmit the revenues to Jerusalem. He was also delegated with the power of admitting members into the order, subject to the control and direction of the master, and was to provide means of transport for such newly admitted brethren to the far east, to enable them to fulfill the duties of their profession. As the houses of the temple increased in number in England, sub-priors came to be appointed, and the superior of the order in this country was then called the Grand Prior, and afterward master of the temple. Many illustrious knights of the best families in Europe aspired to the habit and vows, but, however exalted their rank, they were not received within the bosom of the fraternity until they had proved themselves by their conduct worthy of such a fellowship. Thus, when Hugh de Ambois, who had harassed and oppressed the people of Marmontier by unjust exactions, and had refused to submit to the judicial decision of the Count of Anjou, desired to enter the order, Hugh de Payens refused to admit him to the vows until he had humbled himself, renounced his pretensions, and given perfect satisfaction to those whom he had injured. The candidates, moreover, previous to their admission, were required to make reparation and satisfaction for all damage done by them at any time to churches and to public or private property. 
An astonishing enthusiasm was excited throughout Christendom in behalf of the Templars. Princes and nobles, sovereigns and their subjects, vied with each other in heaping gifts and benefits upon them, and scarce a will of importance was made without an article in it in their favor. Many illustrious persons on their deathbeds took the vows, that they might be buried in the habit of the order, and sovereigns, quitting the government of their kingdoms, enrolled themselves among the holy fraternity, and bequeathed even their dominions to the master and the brethren of the temple. Thus Raymond Berenger, Count of Barcelona and Provence, at a very advanced age, abdicating his throne and shaking off the ensigns of royal authority, retired to the house of the Templars at Barcelona, and pronounced his vows, 1130, before brother Hugh de Rigald, the prior. His infirmities not allowing him to proceed in person to the chief house of the order at Jerusalem, he sent vast sums of money thither, and immuring himself in a small cell in the temple at Barcelona, he there remained in the constant exercise of the religious duties of his profession until the day of his death. At the same period, the Emperor Lothair bestowed on the order a large portion of his patrimony of Supplenburg, and the year following, 1131, Alfonso I, King of Navarre and Aragon, also styled Emperor of Spain, one of the greatest warriors of the age, by his will declared the Knights of the Temple his heirs and successors in the crowns of Navarre and Aragon. In a few hours before his death, he caused this will to be ratified and signed by most of the barons of both kingdoms. The validity of this document, however, was disputed, and the claims of the Templars were successfully resisted by the nobles of Navarre. But in Aragon they obtained, by way of compromise, lands and castles and considerable dependencies, a portion of the customs and duties levied throughout the kingdom, and the contributions raised from the Moors. To increase the enthusiasm in favor of the Templars, and still further to swell their ranks with the best and bravest of the European chivalry, St. Bernard, at the request of Hugh de Payens, took up his powerful pen in their behalf. In a famous discourse, in praise of the new chivalry, the holy abbot sets forth, in eloquent and enthusiastic terms, the spiritual advantages and blessings enjoyed by the military friars of the temple over all other warriors. He draws a curious picture of the relative situations and circumstances of the secular soldiery and the soldiery of Christ, and shows how different in the sight of God are the bloodshed and slaughter of the one from that committed by the other. This extraordinary discourse is written with great spirit. It is addressed to Hugh, Knight of Christ, and Master of the Knighthood of Christ, is divided into fourteen parts or chapters, and commences with a short prologue. It is curiously illustrative of the spirit of the times, and some of its most striking passages will be read with interest. The holy abbot thus pursues his comparison between the soldier of the world and the soldier of Christ, the secular and the religious warrior. As often as thou who wagest a secular warfare marchest forth to battle, it is greatly to be feared lest when thou slayest thine enemy in the body, he should destroy thee in the spirit or lest, peradventure, thou shouldst be at once slain by him, both in body and soul. From the disposition of the heart, indeed, not by the event of the fight, is to be estimated either the jeopardy or the victory of the Christian. If, fighting with the desire of killing another, thou shouldst chance to get killed thyself, thou diest a manslayer. If, on the other hand, thou prevailest, and through a desire of conquest or revenge killest a man, thou livest a manslayer. 
O unfortunate victory, when in overcoming thine adversary thou fallest into sin, and anger or pride having the mastery over thee, in vain thou gloriest over the vanquished. What, therefore, is the fruit of this secular, I will not say militia, but malitia, if the slayer committeth a deadly sin, and the slain perisheth eternally? Verily, to use the words of the apostle, he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that thresheth should be partaker of his hope. Whence, therefore, O soldiers, cometh this so stupendous error? What insufferable madness is this, to wage war with so great cost and labor, but with no pay except either death or crime. Ye cover your horses with silken trappings, and I know not how much fine cloth hangs pendant from your coats of mail. Ye paint your spears, shields, and saddles. Your bridles and spurs are adorned on all sides with gold and silver and gems. And with all this pomp, with a shameful fury and a reckless insensibility, ye rush unto death. Are these military ensigns? or are they not rather the garnishments of women? Can it happen that the sharp-pointed sword of the enemy will respect gold? Will it spare gems? Will it be unable to penetrate the silken garment? As ye yourselves have often experienced, three things are indispensably necessary to the success of the soldier. He must, for example, be bold, active, and circumspect, quick in running, prompt in striking. Ye, however, to the disgust of the eye, nourish your hair after the manner of women. Ye gather around your footsteps long and flowing vestures. Ye bury up your delicate and tender hands in ample and wide-spreading sleeves. Among you, indeed, naught provoketh war or awakeneth strife, but either an irrational impulse of anger or an insane lust of glory or the covetous desire of possessing another man's lands and possessions. In such cases, it is neither safe to slay nor to be slain, but the soldiers of Christ indeed securely fight the battles of their Lord, in no wise fearing sin, either from the slaughter of the enemy or danger from their own death. When indeed death is to be given or received for Christ, it has naught of crime in it, but much of glory. And now for an example, or to the confusion of our soldiers fighting not manifestly for God, but for the devil, we will briefly display the mode of life of the knights of Christ such as it is in the field and in the convent, by which means it will be made plainly manifest to what extent the soldiery of God and the soldiery of the world differ from one another. The soldiers of Christ live together in common in an agreeable but frugal manner, without wives and without children, and that nothing may be wanting to evangelical perfection, they dwell together without property of any kind, in one house, under one rule, careful to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You may say that to the whole multitude there is but one heart and one soul, as each one in no respect followeth after his own will or desire, but is diligent to do the will of the Master. They are never idle nor rambling abroad, but, when they are not in the field, that they may not eat their bread in idleness, they are fitting and repairing their armor and their clothing, or employing themselves in such occupations as the will of the master requireth, or their common necessities render expedient. Among them there is no distinction of persons. Respect is paid to the best and most virtuous, not the most noble. They participate in each other's honor. They bear one another's burdens, that they may fulfill the law of Christ. An insolent expression, a useless undertaking, immoderate laughter, the least murmur or whispering, if found out, 
passeth not without severe rebuke. They detest cards and dice. They shun the sports of the field, and take no delight in the ludicrous catching of birds, hawking, which men are wont to indulge in. Jesters and soothsayers and storytellers, scurrilous songs, shows, and games, they contemptuously despise and abominate as vanities and mad follies. They cut their hair, knowing that, according to the apostle, it is not seemly in a man to have long hair. They are never combed, seldom washed, but appear rather with rough neglected hair, foul with dust, and with skins browned by the sun and their coats of mail. Moreover, on the approach of battle, they fortify themselves with faith within and with steel without, and not with gold, so that, armed and not adorned, they may strike terror into the enemy, rather than awaken his lust of plunder. They strive earnestly to possess strong and swift horses, but not garnished with ornaments or decked with trappings, thinking of battle and of victory, and not of pomp and show, studying to inspire fear rather than admiration. Such hath God chosen for his own, and hath collected together as his ministers from the ends of the earth, from among the bravest of Israel, who indeed vigilantly and faithfully guard the holy sepulchre, all armed with the sword, and most learned in the art of war. There is indeed a temple at Jerusalem in which they dwell together, unequal, it is true, as a building, to that ancient and most famous one of Solomon, but not inferior in glory. For truly the entire magnificence of that consisted in corrupt things, in gold and silver, in carved stone, and in a variety of woods. But the whole beauty of this resteth in the adornment of an agreeable conversation, in the godly devotion of its inmates, and their beautifully ordered mode of life. That was admired for its various external beauties. This is venerated for its different virtues and sacred actions, as becomes the sanctity of the house of God, who delighteth not so much in polished marbles as in well-ordered behavior, and regardeth pure minds more than gilded walls. The face likewise of this temple is adorned with arms, not with gems, and the wall, instead of the ancient golden chapiters, is covered around with pendant shields. Instead of the ancient candelabra, censers, and lavers, the house is on all sides furnished with bridles, saddles, and lances, all which plainly demonstrate that the soldiers burn with the same zeal for the house of God as that which formerly animated their great leader, when, vehemently enraged, he entered into the temple, and with that most sacred hand, armed not with steel, but with a scourge which he had made of small thongs, drove out the merchants, poured out the changers' money, and overthrew the tables of them that sold doves, most indignantly condemning the pollution of the house of prayer by the making of it a place of merchandise. The devout army of Christ, therefore, earnestly incited by the example of its king, thinking indeed that the holy places are much more impiously and insufferably polluted by the infidels, than when defiled by merchants, abide in the holy house with horses and with arms, so that from that, as well as all the other sacred places, all filthy and diabolical madness of infidelity being driven out, they may occupy themselves by day and by night in honorable and useful offices. They emulously honor the temple of God with sedulous and sincere oblations, offering sacrifices therein with constant devotion, not indeed of the flesh of cattle after the manner of the ancients, but peaceful sacrifices, brotherly love, devout obedience, voluntary poverty. These things are done perpetually at Jerusalem, 
and the world is aroused, the islands hear, and the nations take heed from afar. St. Bernard then congratulates Jerusalem on the advent of the soldiers of Christ, and declares that the holy city will rejoice with a double joy in being rid of all her oppressors, the ungodly, the robbers, the blasphemers, murderers, perjurers, and adulterers, and in receiving her faithful defenders and sweet consolers, under the shadow of whose protection Mount Zion shall rejoice and the daughters of Judah sing for joy. End of section 33